Hi everybody, I'm Peter Travers and this is Popcorn where we tell you what is happening in the culture, movies, TV, theater. It's theater today because my guest Gunda Jackson has returned to Broadway after doing something, well to me, that's extraordinary. Giving up a, a Hollywood career as an actress and where she won two Academy Awards to go to Parliament, to run for Parliament and to stand for people and to stand for people in a way that deals with the social contract, what we owe to the people, our constituents. Very, very rare to see something like this happen and now she's returned to Broadway in Three Tall Women, which is an Edward Albee play that's revived here and this is one of, I think, the most extraordinary performances you can see in the theater. So I am thrilled to have you here. Well, how lovely. Thank you so much. Well, it is. You know, people were throwing things in the air. When you take your curtain call, Gunda, I've got to say, you look at us Americans sometimes like, what are you doing? Well, we don't do standing ovations in my country. (laughs) So it's always a surprise. Mm -hmm. But there's something so generous and so... And what's the word? Direct and immediate about it. You can only feel grateful. So I'm saying watching you in Three Tall Women Mm -hmm. is a great experience for me. What's it like for you? Oh, well, it is an extraordinary play. It's a very difficult and therefore very interesting play to do. And one of the really big pluses is that I'm working with two remarkable actresses. (laughs) I mean, Laurie Metcalf and Alison Pill. Uh, Laurie's work I'd known because I've seen her on television. Regretfully, I've never seen her on stage. Alison's work I didn't know. They're just amazing. And usually you don't have that opportunity to work with actresses because there is still a marked dearth for contemporary writers finding women interesting. You know, you're usually there. Why is that? I wish I knew. What is it I with wish I knew. men? It's not been doing exactly this. the same all my professional life. I mean, there was a period, I think, in certainly as far as cinema was concerned, where the woman was there to prove that the hero wasn't gay. I mean, it was, you know, one of those bizarre things. <laughs> But to work with actresses of this calibre is just such a, such a privilege, really, and that's one of the big pluses. You could see something with the three of you on that stage where it looks like you'd rather be there than any place else. Well, that's very good. Time. That's very exactly. good because yeah. that's central and essential, actually, just telling not the stories of these women, but also the story of the play. They're in this room. And, you know, you have to get the audience into that room with you. So you've just said we do. So thank you very much. Well, you really do. Well, the first, there's no separation. We, it runs all the way through this time. Indeed. But what I would call the first act yeah. is basically you right. being cared for by Laurie Metcalf's character yeah. and Alison Pill playing the attorney who is Absolutely. basically saying do this. And then yeah. when we switch, they're all manifestations of you. Different periods in one life, mm-hmm. yes. yes. So does this make you, while you're playing this, think of your own life? Well, not really, because the one central thing about creating a character, I suppose, if, is you have to see the world through their eyes. You can't be judgmental about them. I mean, obviously, I'm covered. I mean, I'm constantly saying when, in the first part of the play, I've shrunk, I've shrunk. So the fact that I'm not that particular tall, <laughs> particularly tall is covered, I think. Um, but certainly there are elements within the play that reverberate, I think, regardless of, of your own individual age and your own individual experiences, because you've seen it. You know, you may not have directly experienced it, but we, we live in a world where there are people of all ages, all shapes, all colours. And so those amazing, tiny 
often quite tiny things you you are aware of yeah well there's so much happening on that stage um and to see that at the end with three manifestations of the same woman right and a lot of people have said to me well she's really tough well you get that kind why is that people say that were saying I was going to talk to you would say she's intimidating isn't she do you know there are two things throughout my life which I have, I've always found amazing that have been said about me the one is a variation on what you've just said she's frightening mm -hmm. I never understood frightening oh more frightening. than intimidating and the other one is people say she speaks in complete sentences and I think well don't we all speak in complete no. sentences no well I won't <laughs> no I'll we're, we're all on social media <laughs> oh but said. I'm not you see I'm a Luddite as far as IT is There's concerned. none of that. Huh? None, There's just none, none of that in, none. in that world. I, thi I think you're right. Complete sentences might be one reason. But the other thing is you speak your mind. And you've played a lot of roles on screen, on stage, mm -hmm. of people who do say what they're thinking. I've been very lucky in that respect, yeah. yes. Having you know, been carping about the, the lack of contemporary writers, writing sufficient parts for women. I have been very fortunate in that respect. There's uh, one of your films that I particularly admire. It's called yeah. Sunday Bloody Sunday. Oh, yes. Yes, and yes. you have a line in that <laughs> that just says, there have to be times where nothing is better That's than just anything, yes. you know, yes. to do that. Yeah. yeah. But I think the intimidation factor is also, look what you did. You... You have a career in Hollywood. You never played the star system. No, no. But you were working all the time in the yep. 70s, two Oscars, four nominations. Mm. Where are those Oscars? Well, one, one of my nephews borrowed quite a few years ago now and has markedly failed to return it um, because they were doing a project in school and the other one oh, is... Oh great, a school project yeah, and I need yeah. an Oscar. Yes, absolutely. Right. Yeah, obviously an interesting school. And um, the other one I think is up in the attic. <laughs> you don't visit it? Not often. It's rather high up in the house. <laughs> that, the knees. Well, that first... <laughs> really. The first Oscar you won was Women in Love, Kim yes. Russell's woman, a yeah. director that, even watching that movie now, it seems like oh, God. Uh, it he just was, got made. He just was wonderful. Yeah. I mean, Ken had a third eye, you know, he was just an amazing director. Didn't, he, he didn't really know much about acting, but he created an atmosphere where you could, if you see what I mean. Mm -hmm. I mean, he'd say things to you like, it's all a bit... What I, <laughs> what I want is a bit more... And you sort of knew what he meant. And he created the... He, like all really great directors, he always knew what he didn't want. He expected you to be able to show him what he did. And he would take ideas from anybody on the set. I mean, he was completely open in that way. And then he would make his decision, you know, of what he would go for. He was just amazing. amazing. There's, there's a scene in that film that anybody that sees it can't forget of you right. um, uh, with the cattle. Oh, yes, of you know? course. Oh, yes. <laughs> there she is. Well, if you haven't seen that movie, go stream it now and see it immediately. Where you're just, as Gundren is facing... This these great herd of cattle with these amazingly curved horns. Oh, am And I was petrified. And the guy, didn't look it. well, the guy whose cattle they were said, don't worry, they're much more frightened of you than you are of them. And I said to him, well, that is simply not possible. <laughs> and there was Ken saying, get closer, get closer, come on, get closer. And so, yes, he, um, 
he demonstrated his own heroism by putting his actors through very dangerous situations. <laughs> his own heroism. But, I mean, you're flirting with them, seducing oh, yeah, them, That's and the whole doing idea. that. The this whole is idea. this is where the fearless part of you comes oh. in, mm. even though you say that you're petrified. I was. Yeah. I mean, you know, they could have done anything. I thought, but anyway, it all worked out right in the end. And you know, when you win your second Oscar for mm-hmm. Touch of Class, now it's this. Romantic comedy with yeah, George yeah, Segal. Yeah. It's, it's just amazing saying, for me to yeah. be sent to comedy. I mean, I'm, I'm sure they're saying she could do this. Well, I'm sure they did. I mean, up until that point, all that came through the front door were yet more sex-starved neurotics, you know, and I've done quite a lot of those. <laughs> so when a comedy came through, it was just great. And to work with, that was one of the also great excitements. I think it was the first time I'd worked with an American actor. And I am of a generation where I was learning my craft. Um, The kind of guys, and they were still mostly guys, um, who'd been in it for a long time, they had to demonstrate that the last thing on their mind was what they were going to do. I mean, that acting was completely, actually irrelevant. You know, you do the crossword and someone would say, OK, it's your cue, and they'd go on the perform. It was that kind of fantasy world. And here I was working with someone for whom acting was life and death. <laughs> I mean, it was really? life, absolutely life and death. I mean, the energy of it and the variety that he he brought to it. And, you know, he'd do improv things and he'd toss things at you while the camera was running and you had to be able to toss it back. And that was just so thrilling for me. I'd never worked with that direct, concentrated energy in that way before. And it was a real thrill. And you did it. There are a lot of actors that can't transition into that. You did later, you did films with Walter Matthau. Oh, well, there was another one, you see. What a glory. I mean, he was just a glory to work with. He was heaven on earth. Yes. House Calls is the, is the one that I remember a lot. Oh, Again, course, yeah. when, when people go to the intimidation factor, you were speaking the lines that were written for you in a script by right. something. Yeah. But looking at a movie that was made decades ago, right. where you could still say a line, where somebody's saying to you about... How are you doing in your dating life and what's happening? You, there's some, I'm saying it wrong, I'm sure I'm paraphrasing, right. but it was, look, I find that I can take a gentleman out, you know, and take him to dinner with all the trimmings and then get him in the sack and all for under $50. <laughs> you know? It's like, did I really? Right, have you did. Like that that was marvelous. like so great. <laughs> then it wasn't, we weren't seeing that. No, I'm quite. saying what in America we see you doing those things that you did, especially in the 70s, where we weren't seeing that kind of thing. Well, no, but then I was very lucky that there were people who were doing those kinds of things, and they thought of me, and that was great. Mm -hmm. They did do it. And there, so there's all this happening for you, and you say, guess what? I had been doing stuff for the Labour Party. I'm never quite sure... must have been about the mid-70s, and I'm never quite sure it was... I became a face you could put a name to or a name you could put a face to. But anyway, the Labour Party asked me to do things for them, which I was very happy to do. I've always supported them. And we have a system within the Labour Party, we did, it's changed slightly, where the individual constituency party selects a candidate to fight the next election. And I'd been asked by a couple of them, not London-based seats. And at the time I was working, it wasn't possible for Mm -hmm. me to do. But Margaret Thatcher was in power. And 
I think it was the day she said there was no such thing as a society, and it made me so furious. I walked into my closed French windows and almost broke my nose. <laughs> and out of the blue, um, a constituency party in London, in Hampstead and Highgate, had to select a prospective candidate. They contacted me, and at that point, anything, I would have done anything, anything that was legal to assist in getting Margaret Thatcher and her government out of power because my country was being destroyed. What I, as a child, had been taught were vices. She was saying to me, no, no, they're virtues. It's not greed. You're being self-reliant. It's not selfishness. You're prioritizing what is most important to you, which is your family. No, no, it doesn't matter if we destroy the whole of our social fabric because we can, you know. And I thought, what's going on in my country? It's being destroyed. I mean, there wasn't a shop in London at that period which wasn't the bedroom, living room and bathroom of some poor, helpless, homeless person. And in many instances, they were mentally ill because she had also closed many of our long-stay mental hospitals. And, I mean, it was just a nightmare, so that's why I did it. Supposed to take care of each other. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And that is what the best of, of politics tries to do. It tries to create a society in which the unique nature of us all, I mean, you know, we do have that unique God-given, presumably, quality, but where we realize that we cannot function unless we can communicate and interchange, only connect are the most yes, important Ian words. Foster, he knew what he Thank was talking about. Thank you. Only yeah. connect. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But when you came in, Margaret Thatcher had passed She'd away. She'd already gone. Yeah, no, she no, was, she hadn't died. But she had oh, ceased she to be the leader of her party mm -hmm. um, the year before the next general election, which was 1992. She left in 1990 mm -hmm. because her party kicked her out. Um, and so I was elected in 92 to represent my constituency, but the Labour Party was still in opposition. And we didn't get into government until 97, and then we were there for 10 years. So you did your part for what you could do to well, make Well, we tried, yeah. yeah. I mean, well, I trying is tried. everything, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, and, and certainly, <coughs> I mean, as I won that seat, and we hadn't had it for more than 25 years. We've kept it now for, I think, 26. Mm -hmm. I won. I was re-elected five times, and last time, the last election, which I didn't stand in, we held that seat. We've got a very interesting young woman in there now as our MP. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When you look back at that time, mm -hmm. what do you feel were your accomplishments doing? It would be always pretty much on an individual level. One of the things that was most humbling for me, being a member of parliament, we, all members of parliament do it, we hold what we call advice surgeries. I used to hold four, you know, one a week, mm -hmm. towards the end five, in different locations in my constituency. And people would come, I mean, I didn't do it by appointments, people come, they wait and they come in. And I'd be sitting in, my, in the room that I would meet them. And someone would come in who I'd never seen in my life before, they'd never seen me in their lives before, and they would lay their life out on the table for me. And nine times out of ten, that was why they were there. I was their port of last resort. They'd tried everything else, and nothing had come along, no, no help had come along to transform their lives and their life. And I'm not saying I always got the result that they wanted, but I always got a reply to a letter. I always got a reply to a phone call. I could say to them, 
this is what you know yeah. and succeed or fail in their particular situation I mean I'm talking about people you know in some instances their lives were just unbelievably dreadful um, they would say thank you and that is so humbling do you know what I mean humbling it's, and validating well is it a point validating I, um, but you know I mean just the fact that they they that you, you wear the port of their their last port of resort well, and I could see you yeah. now talking about it, feeling this still, mm. you know, well, that it's there. So, How yes. do you walk away from it? You don't. I mean, you can't. I mean, it, it, an MP, it, it, I mean, in a sense, it's 24-7. They may not be in front of your eyes 24-7, but the, the stories you hear, the problems you oh, face, no, you're, the, realities of, the realities of <clears throat> some people's lives, you think to yourself, how in the name of all that's holy did we get to this state? But... You know, you do what you can do. But you return to this life that you had before as an actress. Yes. Up to and to course. do that. Yes. And you, being you, yeah. <laughs> decide in London to not uh, just come back in a small part. Well, you decide to do King Lear well, and play King Lear. Well, Where does that come from? Well, Didn't it came you feel in any? the first instance from my friend Nuria Espert, who is a great Spanish actress. She did it in Barcelona. Mm -hmm. And I went to see her, and she was superb, and it was a brilliant, brilliant production. And she said to me, why don't you do it? I said, don't be ridiculous, Nuria. I said, they'd never let me play Lear in England. What, a woman playing Lear? Come on. Anyway, I'd done a series for BBC Radio, which had been successful, and a theatre in London, the Old Vic, asked me to do a play. I didn't want to do the play they offered to me. But my agent said to me, if you're going to come back, pretty much as you've said, you've got to do something big, do Lear. So I said, hang on a minute, I've got to sit down. <laughs> so then I thought, oh, go on then, have a go. And the Vic were very brave, and they said, yes, okay, fine, come and yeah, do Yeah, have it. a go. And so now you come back here, and oh, it's well. three tall women yeah. to do this. What's going to happen now? I don't know. I don't know. I'm, what is your life back home in London like every day when you're not doing I'll tell you, I'll, I'll lead into the detail with this. When I stopped being a member <laughs> of Parliament, I remember saying to, to my office girls, the three girls who worked in my office I looking forward to a time of total irresponsibility I cease to be an MP I'm utterly utterly irresponsible only to discover and I'm partially ashamed to say I was so stupid about this far from being irresponsible I mean who gets me out of bed in the morning but me I mean the the responsibility is total. I mean, it's all down to you. There's no one nudging you from the back saying, you know, you've got to go to this meeting or there's somebody waiting to see you. You are utterly responsible. So that came as a bit of a shock. Um, and my life is very ordinary. I, you know, I live in a basement flat. I've got a garden. With your um, son My and son and his family live above me in the same house, but above me. Um, I do my own cleaning, I do my own cooking, I do my own shopping, I do my own laundry. I live a very ordinary, dull life. And you're a grandma? And I'm a grandma, yes. So how old is your grandma? He's 11. So does he teach you about social media that you don't want any part of? Well, I'll put it... I, I, my la I have no none of this IT material at all. And my landline went off. And they were taking ages to repair it. So they got anxious, my family. So they said, you've got to get a mobile phone. So I said, OK, fine. So I get a mobile phone. And they teach me how to use it in the shop. And I come home. And um, it rings. And I don't know how to connect it. So I said to my grandson, show me how to answer it. So he did that. 
So a couple of days later, he's done, and uh, the phone goes. And I said to him, come on, I don't know how to use it. He said to me, he was eight at the time. He said to me, I've shown you how to do this three times. I'll do it once more. And that was it. <laughs> that was it. So. That was it. And I thought, fine, this is not my media here. <laughs> I will remain a Luddite. I don't know. Maybe maybe your grandson will get, we'll all have an at Glenda Jackson. Oh, and you'll just so. be doing all of so. that. No. This is, you no, know, it's... I could talk to you for forever. And they're telling me I can't. And oh. it has, <clears throat> has to end. You don't know that this show ends in a slight bit of song. No, I don't. It what does. Song is well, it? I've seen you sing. No, anything that we want to sing. Oh, really? Even though I have a request. Go on. In Women in Love. Yeah. You don't sing it, but you're with the cattle, and Jenny Linden is singing "I'm Forever Blowing." Oh bubbles. yes, I remember. It's like that. Ken Russell used that song. Oh yes. Because this is a world of import. The world's changing, Absolutely. and yet it's that song. Yeah, yeah. So can we? I'll do it with you. Can we do just okay. the end of that? Okay. I'm forever blowing bubbles. Pretty bubbles in the air, they fly so high, nearly reach the sky. Then, like my dreams, they fade and die. Fortune, I can't remember the next night. Find me, find me. I've looked everywhere. But I'm forever blowing bubbles, pretty bubbles in the air. Bum, bum, bum. So great. One of the great actresses on the planet. And we're singing about bubbles. But why shouldn't we? Why shouldn't we? <laughs> only connected. Only connected. We did. Thank you so, oh, so no, much. Thank you. Thank that you was so fun. Much. That was good.